Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, Adam here. If you've been listening to this Anthro Life for a while, you probably noticed that the show has ads now. I just want to acknowledge that and say thanks for continuing to go on this journey with me. I mean, nobody loves ads, including me, but they are helping me support the continued production of the show and continue my goal of bringing you the most valuable conversations and content out there in the Anthro metaverse. So I just wanted to say thanks for listening and being a part of this journey as the show evolves. Now, let's get to it. It's so useful. Anthropology is so so useful. useful. (laughs) You're working with people. Anthropology is a toolkit. It's not necessarily like this rigid ideology. It's it's flexible. It's mobile. It, it's it's ever changing, just like the rest of the world. Every problem is a people problem we have, and and anthropology deals with people. So that's that's really why we wanted to make sure that people out there had a book they could just easily go into because there's a million world building books out there, but none of them focus on real social systems. They focus on, oh, well, if you're going to do a magic system, this is how you do it, right? But but they don't say, okay, well, what does a real magic system look like? Yeah, because we have, there is magic in the real world. We have magical yeah. systems that people have studied and that we've got you know, a blueprint for but nobody ever addresses that. I was reading uh, Wade Davis's book recently, The Serpent and the Rainbow, mm. and he does a, a fantastic chapter on what is happening with magic. You know, what is the physiology behind this? And they actually tested people and everything, and you, the stress hormones actually kill people. So they actually <laughs> give them a simulated experience of shock. So, you know, it's, it's even though the magic might be a placebo effect, it can still kill you. You know, yeah. So, yeah. so if they put a curse on you, you can still die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so why not study those systems, see how they work, see how humans relate, and then put that in a fictional world to make that a part of it. Hello, and welcome to this Anthro Life. I'm your host, Adam Gamwell. I'd like you to do something for me. Think about your favorite book, your favorite story. What about it? Do you love? You know, I've been fascinated by this question of why do certain stories stick with us? And also found myself thinking about when do stories stick? As we change and grow, sometimes so do our favorite stories. Or our favorite stories remind us of a simpler time or offer us a kind of escape. For others, our favorite stories tell us something fundamental about being human that just echoes deeply within us or they might respond to the world in an interesting way that makes us feel empowered. And the truth is we're at an exciting and challenging time where cultural narratives are shifting alongside our favorite pop culture and sci-fi stories. Today, Astrid County joins me to co-host a conversation with the very dynamic duo of archeologist Kira Wilstrom and anthropologist Michael Kilman. Now, Kira and Michael are educators and authors, and their latest book caught my attention because it does two things at once. First, it serves as an introductory textbook for anthropology students, digging into key ideas like culture and ritual, food, power, and death. But second, it's premised around how to use anthropology for building better worlds for game design, fiction writing, and filmmaking. You see, Building Better Worlds is about creating more authentic characters based on actual science and data from culture. Thus, the book is both an introductory text for anthropology students and also creators. What makes this work so well is that beyond anthropology, Michael and Kira both are deeply steeped in many of the fictional worlds that have shaped so many of our lives. Star Trek, Avatar, Gattaca, Stephen King, you name it. They are creators, writers, gamers, and readers. And the kinds of stories that we tell, think like superhero narratives or fantasy epics or sci-fi dystopias, 
all help us reflect on what it means to be human, about what we hope for, wish for, and what we're afraid of. These kind of stories also change us, right? Good stories with realized worlds can challenge our sense of right and wrong, how we see ourselves, and help us become more empathetic with those who are different. We can also look at characters and worlds differently. Why are we so obsessed as a culture with zombies? You know, what is it about this mindless, violent horde that we just can't seem to shake off? Maybe I should say shamble off. You know, how do zombies remind us of ourselves or others? So Michael and Kira take us on a whirlwind tour across media, books, games, and films so that we can come away with a better and fresh understanding of what it actually means to build better worlds and how we can do it ourselves. So I can't wait to dig in with you. Let's get to it. There's something about that I wanted to ask you both about. Just in your, in your perspective, you know, what is it about storytelling and being human? Like, why do we need to tell stories? And we do it in so many different ways where we tell them about ourselves. Like, we have culture, which is the story we write of ourselves. And then we also create fictional worlds beyond that. I'm kind of curious your perspective. Why do we need to create? I think humans are just so hungry for experience. Like we want to see and do and taste and touch as much as we possibly can. Story kind of allows us to do that because we're so creative and we're so imaginative that when someone is telling us their lived experiences, it's like we can live it too. And so I think we love to just fill the world with all these amazing experiences that we haven't had or couldn't have or might have in the future. But I I think it's a way to just give us more to, to do and to experience. Yeah. And and to add to that stuff, I, I think there's two further points there. Curiosity, which you're kind of delving into that, right? We're, we're innately curious and we're especially curious about things that we don't understand or things that we're different, that are different from us. I, I think that curiosity kind of spurs us to, to really understand it. And, and I think what storytelling does is it gives us something to make sense of, something to relate to. Because if you think about it, you know, if you've ever read a historical account of a battlefield, for example, you know you're only reading one very specific series of things that happened because an actual battlefield is just pure chaos. It's kind of a miracle that anyone makes it through a battlefield because everything's coming at you from all directions. And, you know, that's kind of life. You know, things are coming at you from all directions all the time, and it makes so much more sense if you can compress that into a story, especially a story that you can feel a connection to. For example, and we don't really talk about this in the book, but a a really important feature of building a good story is empathy with the characters. It's why so many famous stories have orphans as kids. Orphans or people who have been displaced or dispossessed of themselves. So it's easier to suddenly relate. And so good stories, you know, have relatable characters that satiate our curiosity, that give us a sense of wonder. And that's really useful when we're trying to understand exactly how our life works. And I, and I think that's not dissimilar from ritual. That's a lot of what ritual is trying to do, give us some sort of sense of structure, explore these other ways of knowing, being in that state of liminality, uh, all that stuff. It, it, all these dynamics are kind of coming together into one narrative, as it were, so that we can really engage with it. Yeah, I really like this interesting idea of storytelling as almost like its own form of liminality in, in this way, right? That it is this, we kind of experience elsewise through them and they, you know, they both help us make sense, but then it is just um, helping us kind of be itself, you know, betwixt and between as it were. Yeah. And if you think about what liminality does, right, this, this state of normlessness, uh, you know, this middle state between the before and after when you're reading a book or when you're watching a show or when you're playing a video game, if, if it's a good story, it changes you. It does change you. And so there is kind of a transformative process when we're taking in this story, especially if it's something that is deep and meaningful. You know, you're not the same after you finish a seven book series. You know new things, even then, even if they're things that are not necessarily applicable. You know, you don't sit down and read seven, seven books in a series if it didn't touch you, if it wasn't meaningful you in some way. So there's this kind of storytelling can be transformative just like a ritual can, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's like, you're, you're absolutely right. It is kind of a state of liminality to engage in a story. And maybe that's why it's so frustrating when people don't finish their uh, <laughs> series. Talking to you, George R. R. Martin. But, you know, <laughs> you're leaving us in a liminal state, damn it. <laughs> Come on, man. 
That was actually the reason why I never understood why I had to read Chaucer because I didn't get why I had to read something that was unfinished. It felt like, <laughs> what was the point? I mean, this is so fascinating, this conversation that we're having around storytelling and ritual. And I know that in the book, you're talking really about like how to create worlds. A lot of times this would be like maybe a fictional world that you're writing or maybe a world that you're, you want to shoot like a film. But as I was reading it, I was also thinking about just the current state of our real world and how lacking it is of having stories of a different kind of future. And I was wondering if these were things that you also were thinking about or sometimes even address sometimes because there is this aspect of it's really hard to try to be something that there is no blueprint for. And stories are a great way of experimenting with what if we did things this way or what if we did things that way? And it seems like in our world right now, there's not a lot of stories like that. And I'm just wondering if you think that there's some connection to like maybe not having ritual or maybe there's there's um, research that shows that a lot of Americans are less religious, like some some aspect of these touch points that have been around for so much of what, it, you know, our entire history of being human seem to be kind of coming out of our normal everyday lives. Do you think that's contributing to our inability to not build better stories for ourselves? I think a big issue with our storytelling, though, is that we, we see the world from kind of a limited perspective, and particularly in like the United States and in a lot of sort of post-colonial societies, there's a, a very dominant narrative. And that's kind of, we, we draw from that for our storytellings. Like Michael and I talk all the time about how boring it is basically that like every fantasy world is just medieval England. <laughs> like, and that's our cultural context. And, you know, Americans are the ones creating a tremendous amount of content. And we're pulling from our, history books and from our experiences and what we read as children and but it, it leads to this very sort of narrow field to draw from yeah we do talk a little bit about uh you know futurisms in in our uh one of the the final chapters of the book but you know afrofuturism and indigenous science fiction and indigenous futurisms are, are really very interesting areas to explore because they do have different questions. And uh, I write this, I'm writing a dystopian series currently. I'm writing the fifth book now, but I kind of grapple with some of this too a little bit because, you know, you have kind of the European style futurism going on there, but, you know, as they're going on in the series, they encounter people from different places. They encounter people who were a part of a coalition of refugees that included indigenous people and uh, people from other places as well. And, and so there's all these questions of, you know, where are the limits of imagination or, or what limits do you give yourself when you just don't explore much? If you just consume the same kind of content over and over. And I'm going to say right here that part of that problem is capitalism, right? And part of the problem is what gets made and what doesn't, you know, because there's, there's no limit to unique stories and unique futurisms out there. You know, it's, it's also like, if you're you're reading a fantasy novel that takes place in a completely different context than European culture, part of the issue is that you're so used to the European culture, it's kind of an acquired taste, right? Hmm. You may or may not at first really understand it. And so I think part of our futurism is like, I mean, I grew up with Star Trek. I grew up with Stargate, all these various different, uh, you know, standard futurism ideas and the ones that hit really hard are the ones that are that are familiar to us. And so it's really hard to kind of bring in new story ideas. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons we were trying to write this book is to say, like, look, as long as you're making your culture holistic, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to do some sort of standard script. And this is one thing I'm going to I rail on it all the time in the, the indie uh, publishing community. Um, this idea of writing to market, you want to write to market. And I was like, OK. I get you're trying to make your books a business, but writing to market doesn't open the possibilities for new ideas. It just recycles the same standard tropes over and over and over again. And so 
in my mind, at least, if you're writing specifically to market and you're not playing with new ideas, you're kind of selling out a little But I mean, you know, that's a little bit kind of a, uh, <laughs> you know, a little bit of an arrogant statement there, of course. But, um, but, but certainly I think that, you know, this is why you see, uh, you know, when you get one hit from the whole, you know, orphan, post-apocalyptic, savior, female narrative, then you get 15 other stories immediately following that, right? Um, and so you get hunger games and then you get like 10 other book series that hit big that are just like hunger games, or you get mm-hmm. Harry Potter and then 10 other things that come out like Harry Potter, or you get the expanse. And now there's this huge crave craving for, you know, hard science fiction, hard gritty science fiction. Right. And so, um, and so that's one thing that happens is something, you know, gives you even just a little bit taste of something fresh and then everybody has to do it because that's how the whole marketing and commercial system works. And I think one of the, the major challenges too is is that it seems there's, there's clearly an appetite to have new kinds of stories, right? That we need to tell new stories, especially as we find ourselves entering these unprecedented eras of dealing with, with global issues like climate change and you know the resurgence of societal level conversations around race and inequality in the United States and, and around the world. And what does health mean, you know, and how that's changed because of 2020 and COVID and in like there's there's this need for for new kinds of stories because there's a recognition that there are new kinds of realities out there, um, and there's and there's things that we need to address. And so, it is really interesting to contemplate these in conversation with what is you know pop storytelling in essence, right? And like what can what can get out there and, and become a story? You know, I mean, I'm remembering the Hot Zone from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like the the I guess the previous before Matt Damon's Contagion, um, like popular <laughs> story around <laughs> viruses, right? And um, outbreak. An outbreak. That's right. Yes, an that's outbreak right. with Dustin Hoffman back in the nineties, right? I think that that's was right. the first one I saw, and that one yeah. scared me to death. And in the seventies, <laughs> a drama to strain with Michael Crichton. Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So there we go. We, we have those. Like so, so, but it's interesting to even note that too. I mean, I, I mean, I guess are, are we prognosticating? Are we going to see a, a proliferation of virus novels now? <laughs> I think we have been. That's what zombie stories are. Most of them are viral ah. driven, right? And and so you kind of see this undead rising creatures who have been infected by this disease and destroying, you know, the world order with their mindlessness. I mean, you know, sounds like people who don't want to wear masks to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've been afraid of this for a long time, I think. Yeah. I I mean, you know, we always have heard stories throughout history about pandemics, uh, you know, about how they've just, it's always kind of this thing, this fear of disease, I think, in the back of our minds. I think it's I think it's there in human society. And I think the the rise of zombie literature in the late 90s, you know, the resurgence, I should say, of, of zombie literature is a part of that is because we had scares like SARS and we had scares mm. like, you know, bird flu. And, and uh, we saw, oh, this is a close call. And then it didn't happen. And then, yeah, now it finally did happen, right? Where we have, yeah. where we have COVID and, and we're lucky that COVID wasn't more deadly than it was, but you know, like contagion, we, I actually watched that right to be COVID because I guess I'm a glutton for punishment or something, <laughs> but you know, that their quarter of the population who get it dies in that movie. Mm-hmm. And that would just be, I mean, you know, two to three percent is what we get with COVID, and that's been pretty devastating. I mean, imagine a quarter of your population suddenly gone. You know, yeah, yeah. And I think story, like fantasy stories, give us kind of a way to to digest that because, like, I love Contagion; it's one of my favorite movies. But most, like, when I mention it to students, they're like, "Oh, it's so boring." And this is obviously <laughs> pre-COVID, but they're like, "Oh, it's so boring." And I'm like, "No, it's amazing." But they all love zombie movies, the ones with the the virus that takes over the world. So I think it fantasy gives us by by sort of tweaking the perspective it allows us to to digest those sort of really tricky and maybe hard to understand concepts yeah and, and zombie movies are definitely hardcore liminal states right so you just rupt all of society you just you know and so that's very much what disease does so i i think they certainly are kind of this manifestation of of fears of pandemics or, or, you know, even social pandemics of sorts, you know, you know, outbreaks of, you know, this massive resurgence of white supremacy that's been going on, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of ways that's very similar to zombie stories either. Cause it's just raw rage. It's raw hate. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's these exposed nerves of, of, of deep xenophobia that we have in the back of our mind too. And, and zombies are mindless. They just attack and attack and eat and consume. And that's a lot what hate does to people too. Yeah, that's something that struck me that you were writing about um, early on in your book is just like reflecting on this idea too that when we 
when we might have first approach telling a story or thinking about you know who who it is that we're telling a story about, you know, even just articulating fears, we have this idea, which I, I love the imagery that we tend to think that anything that's outside of what we typically know is kind of like the Borg, right? In Star Trek, yeah. in that it's it's kind of this seemingly unidimensional or one dimensional. You know, here to assimilate and all has the same thought process, even though we know the Borg are a little more complex than that, of course. But that's it was a great metaphor to think about. But then, so I guess I want to put this in conversation with this idea because I think you're right on too that the zombie narrative and the appeal of those stories does actually have really interesting metaphorical and perhaps beyond implications and just questions around the resurgence of the white supremacy movement, for example, or just their their sort of in your faceness over the past. Um, year or so, and that's that's really interesting that um, to kind of put these pieces together. And then, how do we how do we think about like when we are looking at groups that are so different from ourselves that that it's very hard to kind of understand the potential nuance. I'm not here to make a, a, a conversation about the nuances of white supremacists, but um, you know, but just to kind of think about how do we how do we put these pieces together in terms of what does it mean to ask these questions in terms of like what is happening on a cultural level? How can we think about these? And how do stories help us sort of see cultural nuance as it were? I think it's, it, especially writing, but also reading allows you to practice empathy in a way mm. that you don't get in the real world. And th- this was a big thing that we wanted to, or one of the big main reasons that we wanted to make this a textbook is because you, you have to put yourself in somebody else's shoes when you're reading or when you're writing, because you're, mm. you're sort of forced into that position and that kind of practice, I think, allows you to be able to do that with real people as well. If you're sort of, if you can consciously say like, okay, I just read this book and I really like felt what this person was feeling and understand the nuance of their lives and the nuance of their choices, then you can say, all right, well, I'm going to go talk to my neighbor and apply that same kind of thought process. Like it, it's sort of like working out a muscle. It allows you to, to have that strength and that ability. And the more you read and the more you write, the easier it is to talk to real people and understand real people and their, their motivations. And we also did a textbook version of this. Actually, this really began as kind of a, well, sort of. It was like a, like a way of us trying to introduce world building into the classroom because, you know, it is one thing to read about other cultures. It is one thing to learn about their struggles and the things they've gone through. And certainly, you know, I'm sure we've all, been accused when we're teaching anthropology classes of how dismal and depressing they can be because you know <laughs> you're you're reading about all these oppressive situations for these these people who are just trying to to keep their culture going or keep their lives going or just trying to get through their day-to-day experience why all these kind of external forces are are pressing in on them and it's one thing to read about that stuff but then it's it's like a whole nother level or a whole nother kind of muscle to have to build a fictional world you know consider what privilege means because like in my classes they have to make a the privilege chart like we have in our in our in our textbook and so they have to be thinking about okay what because privilege isn't just an either or scenario it's you know it's got different levels it's got different you know avenues and you know uh, tying this all into like intersectionality and stuff like that you know you might be privileged in some areas but you're not privileged in others so then to build a a fictional world that has some sort of situation with privilege and then to see how complicated it is to try and navigate that privilege and then really see what happens then because my last part of my assignment is all right change the world throw in a change agent of some sort (laughs) and so everything gets turned upside down and one of the things they have to do is like what happened to your character are they still privileged are they not what did they face what what areas are they still the same what are they different and then the idea is and that gets the the mental muscles moving to try to understand how complex everyone's lives are not just mm-hmm. not just you know someone over here in this other country but how complicated it is in your everyday life and the various things you have to navigate because sometimes just shining a little light on the complexities of your own life and then recognizing that you're not the only one who goes through this that's a really powerful tool for trying to understand someone who is different than you. And and I think building stories and reading stories and writing stories or video game stories, all that stuff are just vital components for us to kind of, you know, understand each other socially, especially with this social media filter bubbles or whatever, what's the confirmation bias and all that stuff, you know, all that stuff's going around. And so we hear the stories we want to hear you know, it's tailor-made for us. And then suddenly, you know, 
you have to build a world or suddenly you have to read a book that su- you didn't ever consider this other point of view. And that that's, that's really powerful. You know, I, what is it like to suddenly be a blind person in the middle mm-hmm. of the world? You know, what's the, um, there's an old book where the, there's like a, a, the alien plants invade or whatever. What is the oh, name of that book? Oh, um, um, yeah, the triffids. Yeah, the day of the triffids. Day of the triffids, right? And and so first, you know, everybody who is, uh, um, you know, exposed and not in some sort of like sealed area suddenly goes blind, and then these plants take over and start eating people. So it's you know, yeah. But but like, but there's this really powerful moment in there where, you know, you're kind of in the seat of seeing this world of blind people completely helpless who have never had any training whatsoever. And everybody is like that. And and what would happen if you were suddenly struck blind? And, you know, how disorienting would it be? And, and this, you know, and how different would it be if you were blind and had all of those skills? Like how different would their experience be that yeah. in, in that new work, like new reality? Suddenly it's a suddenly it's a privilege to have been blind before this disaster. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of an interesting thing. We're going to take a quick break to hear from this episode sponsor. We'll be right back. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When I was reading that section in the book, it actually made me think of when I was in high school and I saw the movie Gattaca, which I was super excited to see because I wanted to be a medical scientist. And the premise of it seemed like something we would want, you know, like this idea that you could fix your baby before it's born. So there would be no more disease and, and everybody would be able to be the, their healthiest, best self. But I thought that like, as I was reading that section of the book, I was thinking about that one thing that's different, which is like, what happens if you don't get that treatment, which is what that movie is all about. And then what happens if you do, and it's still not enough for you to have the perfect life or it doesn't create the happiness that you thought it would. And it is a really, I I found like when I watched that film that it made me ask questions that at that point in my life I hadn't asked because I thought that life was about solving problems. And I thought if we could solve the problem, then everything would be good. I really hadn't started to consider that what's a problem for one group is an advantage for another. And that when you solve the problem, now you're disadvantaging another group. And how do you deal with it? That's one of my all-time favorite movies, by the way. I, like that's, oh, really? that's yeah, I, I absolutely love that. I might have seen that movie like a hundred times. So, <laughs> but it's just this idea that, I mean, of course, there's a little bit of that, uh, you know, bootstraps kind of narrative in there going on, right? Where this mm-hmm. guy goes through extreme measures to, to become an astronaut, despite the fact that he's been, you know, unaugmented or whatever, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he has a kind of genetic, genetic discrimination against him. So there's a little bit of that stuff, but it's just so interesting and and kind of predictive of of the horrors of something like CRISPR, you know, and it's a conversation. And I think that's one thing that uh, storytelling does do. It, it, it forces us into conversations like that and doing applied anthropology is like that too. When you go into an area and you change something, even if it's something the community asked for, even if it's something the majority of the population wanted, there's still going to be pushback from people who are going to be the losers in this situation. And of course you have to be thinking about the ethical implications of being, you know, one of these change agents. Again, even if you're welcome, even if it's what the, the entire culture wants, you're still going to change the world for somebody for the worse, no matter mm-hmm. what you do. Um, and if that person is like really powerful in the first place, it might be really hard to make any change, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it's like uh, electric cars versus uh, gasoline cars. Of course, we, you know, the world, we want to go on to, to green energy, but um, there's so many different situations and power brokers. And, and then, of course, so many people who will be jobless, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that through that change, regardless of the fact that it's better for humanity in the long term, you know, humans have this problem of short-term thinking a lot of times because, you know, if you suddenly can't eat food, you have to worry about the short-term because yeah, exactly. you can't pay your bills, you know? 
And one thing that that movie brought up that is now a huge part of our narrative is that there's always going to be somebody who will hack your system. Mm-hmm. And if you yeah. can't predict the ways they'll hack your system, they're going to come through and whatever their intentions are, you, you just have to hope for the best because once that happens, then it's a vulnerability that you don't all, like, it's like whack-a-mole trying to fix it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, again, doing uh, applied anthropology work in the field doing or anything with the, in the field, you start to realize that these systems are, man, there's, you know, people talk about corruption in systems, but all systems are really wonky and corrupt all over the place. You know, there's that there's no such thing as kind of a free uh, a system that doesn't have all kinds of little niches. It's it's you know it's 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 just like evolution. Yeah, and, you know, all systems are infinitely complex, mm-hmm. and especially when you're dealing with living organisms and ones as complicated as humans, there's no way you can account for every variable. It's just not possible. Right, which is also why when you're making a social change and people point out the exception and not the rule in, in good social policy. Oh, someone abused their food stamps. Well, yeah, but okay. But, but there's, but you know, there's so many other people who aren't, who aren't. And you're, you're always, there's always going to be people who are abusing the system. It doesn't matter what system you set up. So if you're, you're planning policy on the exception and not the rule, you're really not doing very good planning. Right. And they tend to just call out the exceptions anyway. Right. Cause it's like, Oh, we see that that looks different. Therefore I'm going to talk about that versus actually, right. The, the majority is not, working in, in a corrupt manner. Well, yeah. Uh, and you know, of course in media systems, what sell, if it bleeds, it leads, if it's in a, it's yeah. a controversy, it sells. And so, you know, you focus on the, the, those, the small extremes and the small controversies so that you can sell more, uh, adver- advertising, uh, minutes and, and revenue and all that other stuff. So, yeah. And back into shaping our confirmation biases. Cause that's what we get the ads on social media, right. That help shape our thinking processes. Absolutely. What's interesting too is that on one level, it seems that there is a, a slow awakening happening that, that folks in a broader sense, there, there does seem to be kind of a growing appetite for providing more space for difference. Right. And that's, I think on one level, why we see such loud anti-diversity narratives um, is because the, the hornet's nest is getting stirred up in essence. Right. Yeah. That helps us think of this back and forth where it's, it's that, you know, one, person's advantage is is someone else's disadvantage and vice versa, depending on when the context changes or the circumstances change. So I was, I was curious to think about this in conversation with the chapter on race you put together, as well as colonialism. I appreciated the ideas in the chapters of trying to help designers and writers think about why are so many of our narratives around colonialism, right? We may not even call them that, but so many video games, any 4X video game is about colonialism. Um, Age of Empires, the classic, right? <laughs> so how, how could we... Uh, you know, provide more space uh, or open up more avenues for new kinds of narratives. I think I think the desire for narratives is shifting a little bit. Because, like when you mentioned colonialism, um, uh, one thing I've noticed is in uh, Marvel, the difference between like the comics and the movies is the Kree and the Skrull. And the Kree have always been this like you know vast galactic empire, and the Skrull have kind of been on the the fringes. But in the comics the Kree are very much billed as like, you know, the, the conquering heroes and they're, it's very much like the manifest destiny kind of narrative in American history where like they're going out and they're doing this good work and bringing civilization to the masses and the scroll are kind of the terrorists on the outskirts. But in the movies, it's very much like, it's the same sort of thing. The Kree are still imperial and the scroll are still kind of on the fringes, but the, the perspective has just shifted a little bit. So the Kree are seen as sort of the bad guys and the Skrull are just trying des- like the refugees basically are trying desperately to find a home. So I think the the market is definitely shifting. People are starting to think a little bit differently. So hopefully, because Michael was talking about capitalism earlier, like what sells, hopefully as people are kind of exposed to these differences in thought and as more people want these different narratives, they we'll start buying them and then hopefully it'll open up a little bit just kind of naturally. So people can get these more diverse stories out there. Well, look, I mean, you got black Panther, right? Yeah. Black Panther was one of the most successful of all the Marvel movies movies. And it's really about the question of colonialism versus collaboration. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, you know, the, what's his name? Uh, the, the main antagonist, he's all Killmonger. Well, Killmonger. He's all, let's go out and colonize everyone else with this yeah, advanced let's technology. Be, let's, let's be, we'll be the, clo- we'll be the colonialists this time. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus, right, right. you know, 
ultimately what they decide what's the better choice is collaboration. Let's work with communities. Let's use our privilege and let's use our, our wealth, our technology to, to change the world for the better rather than imposing our ideas and our ideologies on other people. So it is definitely shifting, but it's, you know, and I think one of the things that's happened and, and, you know, and, and my, um, my background of research in grad school is looking at media systems, um, and, you know, one of the things you're seeing that, that has happened in the last two decades is uh, with the Internet, the one thing that the Internet has definitely done well is it's removed the gatekeepers, right? So mm -hmm. suddenly you have voices that, uh, you know, in first, or it's just chat rooms at first and forums at first. And then now, you know, we can post videos on Twitter and, and live stream on Facebook and, you know, and all that stuff. But, it, you know, in the early, early 90s, things began to change. Now, of course, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you might remove the gatekeepers for everybody, but that doesn't mean that everybody has the best of intentions, which is also why you see a resurgence of white supremacist groups online, just as much as you see these wonderful activist groups who are fighting back against, you know, terrible generations long of oppression. Uh, so, uh, you know, that removing those gatekeepers is kind of like, you know, that double-edged sword. And you also I, remove the peacekeepers. Yeah, you remove mm -hmm. the peacekeepers too, right? So you, on, in, that doesn't mean that the peacekeepers are always doing everything that's right, but but at least to some degree, you know, there is a lack of moderation. And, and, and that's a lot of what's going on with Facebook right now, right? There's lots of really, probably lots of really interesting things going on. And but I, but I do think that the early 90s is when we, you know, when you see the Zapatistas movement uh, and you see the battle for Seattle in 99 and then you see Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring. And there's there's all these events that that really kind of rise up and and they they remove these gatekeepers and they use this non-traditional media form of the Internet to really tell different stories. And so, of course, what's going on in the wider world is reflected in our storytelling. It's why you can get something like black panther now where you couldn't that that movie would have never worked in like say the 1980s it would never have been made it would have it, never been made they wouldn't have done it never ever i mean you think about one of the the very first scenes you know they're in the was it the what museum was it they were in that, that, um the museum of london I think. museum of, the, is it the british museum british museum is yeah it the british museum and killmonger walks in and he's just like What's up, colonizer? You know, it's like yeah. you have never gotten away with that, 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 you know, back in the day. So well, you, and you even see this like, um, uh, Stan Lee wanted to make a Shang-Chi series, like Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. He wanted to make a TV show of it in the 80s and they wouldn't let him. He like mm -hmm. went to the, to the board of directors or whoever and pitched this and they said, no, it'll never sell. So, mm -hmm. You, yeah, the internet and kind of just the, the broader conversation is opening up these avenues. So now there's there's a space for this kind of storytelling, like an official space for this kind of storytelling. It doesn't have to just be on the fringes and like on the internet now. It's it's kind of branching into the broader world. And, you know, this goes also with self-publishing. Uh, you know, there's anyone who writes books like myself, we have a complicated relationship with Amazon because, you know, Amazon is really a terrible, terrible corporation. There's no doubt about that at all. But also, Amazon gave people, anyone who wants, in the entire world, they were the first ones to do this, the space to publish their own story. And so anyone's stories could get out there. And, and that's that's an amazing thing to do. And, yeah. uh, but of course, at the same time, you know, yeah. it's just within the context <laughs> of a, you know, a, a very terrible corporation that does all kinds of harm, harm all over the world. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it just shows the complexities of all this stuff. And how, it's all gray areas. All gray areas. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think it's a lot of what we wanted to get across in the book is just how much gray there is out there, you know, because, uh, you know, empires are terrible things, but empires also give you, the internet, they give you advanced science and technology they give and you medicine. Universities and knowledge and libraries. And yeah, mm. they, so they <laughs> there are good things that come from them, even from them, even if they are themselves like an agent of harm. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's messy for sure. Everything is messy. <laughs> Everything is messy. And that that's that's I mean, this is actually one of the things that I have enjoyed um seeing evolve in the star Wars universe to give a bit of my own nerd card away. Yeah. Um, and that like, you know, when, when the original star Wars came out, the empire was just the bad guy, right? It is interesting that and to see franchises like over time, as they then begin to like evolve their stories. And then we do see that, 
they are on one level responding to how we are thinking about the world more today. And that, you know, A New Hope, which was the original Star Wars was premised on basically giving folks, you know, a, a sense of, you know, wonder and awe and that we can step away from actually the harsh realities of the world, which is one of the reasons that there's such a backlash against The Last Jedi was it's actually trying to put Star Wars squarely in a very troubled world in its own way. And so we can debate all that later if we want, but, but <laughs> which is the broader point in terms of what, uh, you know, what people even think their their favorite mythos or stories are supposed to do and that like if these are modern myths in essence how they shape the world that we live in and so it is interesting just to think about this for me at least in, in terms of the star wars evolution from being this very clear good and bad to now a much more morally ambiguous and kind of gray world in the center well my favorite is rogue one that's my favorite <laughs> I just like seeing the complexities of rebellion and how, yes. you know, they aren't great people, you know, <laughs> I, I can't remember where I read this or watched it or something, but I, I read that uh, ISIS was using A New Hope as a recruiting film. <laughs> they, were, they were actually, you know, talking about the evil empires of Europe coming in here and we're fighting back again, you know, so it's just talk about even the complexities of, yeah. of narratives or Avatar. I, I remember yeah. uh, Which Avatar? the, the, uh, not the last airbender, the, uh, the blue, <laughs> the not as good one. Yeah. The, the not as good. The, uh, the rip off of Ursula K. K. Le Guin's, uh, the word for world is forest, that avatar <laughs> dances with Smurf as, as South, with South Smurfs. Park calls it. Right. So, um, but, uh, you know, there's this, um, there's a series of pictures of uh, Palestinians uh, dressing up as a form of protest as the, the blue aliens from Avatar. So, you know, it gets, it gets very interesting in how people view who is the evil empire and who is the rebellion, you know? Yeah. Well, cause everybody sees themselves as the, the good side and the other as the bad side. So, and it, like when you have those very clear, like a new hope where it's like you know, very clear, good and bad, you can, you are meant to step into the good side. Yeah. No one sees themselves as the empire. Right. At least, mm -hmm. Probably not. I mean, I'm sure somebody does, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was a meme going around. It was like a, a picture of uh, Luke Skywalker. It is like young rebel recruited by a, a you know, a, a dangerous organization yeah. seeking to topple <laughs> the empire. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it, it gets really interesting with that stuff for sure. Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate that too. We are, we're entering this new interesting space, you know, I mean, I guess we're already there. Um, but yeah, as, as we are trying to have these new, new, these kind of new stories that we might even recognize, even to your, your point before that Black Panther um, is one of the, these smash hits. And I don't know if, if I don't want to give spoilers away, but um, the, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier was excellent, but it also tackles some very, very important issues that very much stem from, from Black Panther's success as a film. And then also just, it just takes us to a bit to the heart of some conversations happening in the United States right now uh, around race and, and who gets to be a hero. And, and so given that too, it's that like Marvel even thought about this and responded by making this new series, um, you know, post Black Panther, post Endgame uh, Avengers. And it's interesting just to even think about this, like they're using TV as a, as a slightly faster medium than a film. But Kira, did you, did you get that sense too, that there, it's almost this, they want to continue the momentum. Yeah, absolutely. And they clearly, I think, with the the move to TV, they want to tell more complex narratives. And like, if you watch the the making of special, the what is it, assembled at the end of the mm -hmm. series, they talk about that. Like we, you know, normally we're in this hour and a half or two hour format, and like you can tell a good story in that amount of time. But they wanted very specifically to tell a much more complicated narrative. They wanted to talk <laughs> about like the impact of half of the world coming back. Like what happens to the people who were displaced and the people who, you know, lost their homes and did they lose their homes again? And it, it does an excellent job of kind of showing everybody's perspective and still coming down on the side of right and wrong, but showing just how complicated an issue right and wrong is. And it, yeah, I thought it was just a fantastic series. And the fact that they didn't shy away from any of those conversations, they just took them straight head on. I thought that was wonderful. Well, I think that the success of Black Panther probably gave them permission to, to do that kind of stuff. And if you really think about it, I mean, they were the if you because I'm rewatching the Marvel movies right now. Uh, so it's just grab <laughs> yeah, very slowly because there's so many of them. But but, you know, watching the early ones, they are more simplistic. But as in phase one are all very simple, very hero's journey kind of stories. And then the phase two of Marvel, when you get into, you know, Captain America, Winter Soldier, and you get into the Civil War, and you get into all these other stuff, they start asking way more complicated questions about the nature of power. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. About responsibility, uh, you know, about colonialism empire all of this stuff and it just gets incredibly more complex but but (laughs) it makes sense that this is the next logical step that they can now open up these wider conversations on a more long-form medium yeah Mm -hmm. and i i love that because comics have always done that they've always gone into these like really like gritty and complicated depths of humanity but you haven't really seen that in film at least not on this scale before like you'd have films like Gattaca that we talked about like they really kind of delve into these complex issues but it's still that shorter format so having this extended world and like the Star Wars extended universe now is branching into all sorts of different levels of media you can really really kind of explore that and I think it's just wonderful because it it reaches a much wider audience comics are still a little bit niche yeah so things like Mm -hmm. films and television can reach just about everybody well you see this too with the evolution of Star Trek right so you have the original series which does ask political questions absolutely but they're very simplistic political questions in the beginning right Hmm. you know um you know the the famous episode of the black face white face people and each side is different you know that's such an obvious metaphor (laughs) but then you get into next generation starts to ask some more complicated uh questions but it's really deep space nine that that really is like hey uh you know we are a colonial empire aren't we you know, the Federation isn't so great that maybe we don't always are, aren't the best people, right? And, of course, that was carried on in, in Enterprise uh, and then now the the uh, Picard series and, of course, Discovery. Yeah, so. And then, you know, again, if you look at the timing of those things, Deep Space Nine really didn't take its critical turn until the Internet comes in full swing. and People are having these conversations, you know? So, it's the, you see, if you look at the mid-'90s, that's where media begins to make uh, make a big big change. It you know? doesn't just go off of Nielsen ratings anymore. All of a sudden, people can actually like respond to the things that they are watching and have these conversations, and people can hear that. Like the 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 creators of media can hear that, and the internet mm-hmm. can kill or reboot a show. I mean, yeah. think of Firefly. Yeah, and, yeah that's uh, right. That's right. It's, it's got its finale or Family Guy. You know, and I'm not a huge mm-hmm. Family Guy fan, but like. They brought Family Guy back from the dead, the internet, you know, so the Arrested Development, right? I mean, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I believe, is getting rebooted or like is it reimagined. Yeah. Okay. I never I never did watch that series. Oh, I love that series. <laughs> yeah. Doc and questions aside, Buffy is an excellent series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can just love it and not think about Joss Whedon. But I love that series because it was one of the first times I saw a girl be strong. And not yeah. have to rely on a guy to save her, which was awesome. And I could relate to that a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, really groundbreaking in a lot of, I guess, bizarre ways now that we know a lot more about Joss Whedon. But, yeah, really groundbreaking <laughs> okay. in a lot of respects. Well, remember, he's just one one person in the whole. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people forget sometimes is when you have one asshole in the bunch, you forget that, you know, there's several hundred other people who are making that show. That's absolutely Who are contributing true. as writers and editors and, and actors and actresses and, and all that stuff, right? It's not just, you know, we tend to look at something and it's, oh, this person's a bad person. I don't want to ever consume their media again, you know, uh, but you're forgetting that all the, you know, hundreds or thousands of other people who significantly contributed to that. And, you know, they may or may not agree with that, what that person did, so... So true. I, I did see something a while back that was saying that shows like Buffy and even movies like Legally Blonde, like over time have made it possible for there to be female driven characters that are much more complex, not just moms or like girlfriends, and that it has helped to change the way that society thinks about what women can do. So I think television is a really interesting medium because film is great. It can be a really beautiful escape but television makes these people a part of your life in a different way yeah yeah they start to feel like friends that you know or or people you hang out with and it starts to make it easier to bring in that empathy that we were talking about like i don't know 30 minutes ago (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
I think the one exception to that is the Marvel movies because, you know, you're with these characters for 20 plus movies. Yeah. And they feel a little more like TV it's, shows. Yeah, it's much more serialized. And they've actually, they've done studies where they've done brain scans and shown people pictures of their friends and then pictures of the television characters they love and your brain lights up in the same way. Huh. So when you say that we start to think of them as friends, I mean, you're, they're literally like friends to you. They have an, the same kind of impact on your physical brain that they do when you're, that you have when you're hanging out with a friend. Yeah. And when I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and fiction, cause I, you know, drive DoorDash and stuff, you know, <laughs> they're living the, the sweet anthropology. Well, cool, right? <laughs> but, but uh, I, so I listen to a lot of audiobooks and stuff. And uh, I start to actually pick up like character quirks and accents sometimes or certain slang. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I've been listening to too much of this series. Like, you know, I'm, I'm at the, the end of the expanse right now. So, so I catch myself using belters, <laughs> belter terms once in a while. <laughs> yeah, we really, we assimilate a lot of that, a lot of what we take in. And yeah, TV and like those, those longer serial formatted things are like long book series. They really deeply impact us. Well, I think we forget that, you know, writing or reading or consuming a story is a social act. It's, it's a yeah. social act, very similar on par to sitting around the table and sharing stories around Thanksgiving, right? I mean, it's, you're, you're sitting, except you're sitting with a book there by yourself, or maybe you're reading to somebody else or, or something or watching with other people. It's a social act. You know, you know, people talk about being introverts, extroverts all the time. But the fact is, is that everybody is highly social. It's just that it's how you, how you are social, not if you are social. It's a way of participating in the social world. It's interesting just to think about that too, that, that even when we consume them, you know, to Kira's point, our brains light up the same way as if they're, they are our friends. And so there's, there's a real, a realness to them, right? What we consume, you know, shapes our perception of the world and why it's so important for us to get world building right. And it seems that in this broad sense, like anthro helps us do that like in, in unique ways, you know, and even why y'all put this book together the way you did to, you know, help other creators think about worlds in more realistic ways. What's what I'm taking away from this conversation too is this this idea that it, both this is a social act of story creation and consumption, and then also that the characters have a real impact on us, right? Even though uh, Black Widow may not be real, my relationship with her as a, a character I look up to affects my perception of the world, in essence, right? And how I think about heroes and what a hero can do. And and how to face adversity, and so I think there there is something really powerful about that to to digest or to sit with. I suppose that there there's more to it than just you know how do we tell a story well. It's it's actually we have to respect the social aspect of this work, and that it actually does have an impact on on people's lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Building a world is a profoundly social act, right? I mean, it's there's there's no question about it. You're you're creating a a society and. Of course, there's there's levels, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who do pretty good world building and get away with it because their characters are really compelling and interesting, and, and that's fine. And there's some people who do just terrible world building, and it's so bad that you can't they, – they never do anything with it. Like, the world just never takes off. And you, I think most often you see that with video games. You see a lot of really – great ideas but poorly executed video games because the world building just isn't there um but you know it doesn't have to be perfect it it never has to be perfect but having a little anthropology in your toolkit and understanding just that you know social systems are holistic that when you change one arena it's going to ripple out everywhere it's going to create new systems of privilege and experiences and discrimination and you know, some new kinds of luck even, you know, because you can be born into maybe this new technology comes around and you happen to have the right DNA to access it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so suddenly you're, you went from being an oppressed person to a privileged person. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting ways you can uh, go with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that that's right on. And I guess one, one question I'm curious as we, as we wrap in, in terms of your own world building, you wrote two versions of this book. For two different audiences. I think that's super interesting. And I've, I had not heard of people doing this before. So I'm just curious, and this is, it's a bit of a practical question, but, uh, you know, why did you decide to make like, what, like, tell us a bit about what are the two kinds of the two versions you wrote and, and why did you, why did you like kind of bifurcate how you put the book together? I think it was because we, we had two really clear goals because we're, I mean, we're both educators. So we both really, really wanted to, to use this as a tool for education, but we're also 
both nerds. Like we, <laughs> we love world building and we love reading, we love writing. So we really wanted it to, to kind of inform how people create the media that we might consume. So it uh, really early on, we kind of made this split. We realized that the, the aims for both of those things were going to be just a little bit different. Yeah. So we needed to, to kind of make that split so we could kind of tailor it to, to both arenas that we wanted to work in. And we also lost two publishing companies who didn't want to do this with us. They were like, well, why don't you just self-publish then? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we were trying something different because we wanted the knowledge to be accessible. Yeah, I think that's we the also, big thing. We lost the first publishing company because we didn't want to charge enough for the textbook. Yeah, they wanted to charge oh. like 150 bucks or something. Yeah, like and, we, and we didn't want that at all because <laughs> we wanted students to be able to afford it. And especially with yeah. the, the commercial version, we wanted people to be able to afford it. Like we didn't want it to be out of anybody's reach. So we wanted basically as many people as possible, including our students to be able to, to access this material. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, we just wanted this to be out in the public, but we also wanted to use it for the classroom. So we, we wanted to have a more formalized version for the classroom and then, you know, have built in quizzes and like the textbook, for example, has additional content like there is a, a methodology chapter and also a, a much deeper chapter on the history of anthropology and some of the major theorists and stuff. And, you know, when we were thinking about the public version, they like, don't care. Who cares? No, no one, no one, in the public, <laughs> yeah. no one outside of anthropology cares about how you write an ethnography. Right. Or like mm -hmm. with the medical anthropology chapter, I cut it in half for the, the public version huh. because like they, they don't, care it's just not what not what you need to know to build a world and we wanted it to be very accessible as accessible as it possibly could be because we know we're we're writing from an academic perspective so we right. wanted people outside of that realm to still be able to understand it and to to, to enjoy it really when we re-edited every chapter to have less academic feeling about <laughs> it because there was you know of course there's lots of citations in the the textbook version i mean i don't remember how many 30 or 40 pages of citations in the academic version oh, so, it was so many. something ridiculous <laughs> so um you know between the two of us and all of our various sources but um you know so we actually what we did is each of us had our different areas of expertise for the textbook version but then the opposite person edited it for the commercial version because we have different arenas of knowledge. So like Kira knows more about biological anthropology. I know less about biology. So the hope was, is that we know more, we're more like a lay person in that arena. So perhaps we could better translate that idea for the commercial version. So it'd be less jargony. Kind yeah. Of. But I love this idea. It's like, that's something you, you don't see. And it, it's, it's funny cause it, it's like, quite innovative, but also it makes perfect sense. It's like you like have a sense of who your audience is and you have two distinct audiences. So why not craft the book to work for both? Um, it's great. I mean, the, the, again, it's like uh, kudos to y'all for doing that. Cause it's like, we don't see that enough, especially not from anthropology focused yeah. writing, which is crazy. The other thing too is like, we don't have enough anthropology out in the real world. I mean, I still, when I tell people I'm an anthropologist, get, oh, dinosaur bones are really cool, you know? <laughs> or Indiana Jones, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those two. It's yeah. Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones, I guess. Yeah, but, people have no understanding of what it actually is. And we really wanted people to know, because we think it's the coolest thing in the world. Right, of course, because mm -hmm. we're, we're nerdy anthropologists. But, <laughs> but like, besides this anthropological life and a handful of other things out there, you know, there's podcasts and blogs. I mean, I have my... YouTube series, Anthropology in 10 or Less. But like, there's rel if you look at YouTube, there's almost nothing on anthropology. Almost yeah. nothing, right? right? There's there, there's a couple of lectures here, but they're lectures. There's just someone talking. Uh, you know, even like Crash Course, which has done every topic under the sun, has still not done anthropology, you know? Right. I'm glad that somebody else is upset about this because it is one of my pet peeves. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. This is, this has been great. I'm, I'm curious, what are you hopeful in terms of the future of how do we get anthropology into more world building? Like, are we going to see it in more tabletop games and video games, which may be more on YouTube, you know, like where are you excited to see anthropology be implemented more in the future? I think video games is the one that's for me because video games are, they have a lot of potential and they fuck it up so much. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, I totally agree. But it's like, they're so formulaic in their worlds because they're so focused on game mechanics and cool ideas that they don't, that they have like 
Um, you know, they have these narrative designers who have no background in sociology or anthropology or any kind of social science whatsoever. And so they build these worlds that don't make any sense, you know, that there's no, or there's no ramifications for actions. Cause you know, all the gamers always like, Oh, I want real ramifications for my actions. Well, you can't really do that unless you understand that cultural systems are holistic. And if you're interrupting them, then if you're, you as the hero interrupting them, it's going to cause a variety of different impacts. So, you know, I think I think that's the arena that needs it most currently. Plus, there's all the, the problems of, you know, racism and sexism in video games. And, and while those problems are prevalent in other mediums, there are orders of magnitude worse in video games still. So <laughs> video games would be a really important field for uh, anthropology to kind of infiltrate, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. I guess in kind of a more old school and niche arena, I would love better fantasy books. Like I was a voracious reader of high fantasy when I was younger and I kind of got bored of it. Like I mostly went into like sci-fi and kind of other areas. Cause after all, after reading the same fantasy universes over and over and over again, I'm like, okay, I'm done now. Like, yeah, I've read this so many times I'm bored and I would just love like more diversity in books and like diversity of environment and diversity of systems. And yeah, like mm-hmm. I, I would just love that. Cause I, I miss reading high fantasy and being excited by high fantasy and, yeah, look, look if, I love Dungeons and Dragons. I play Dungeons and Dragons with my kids and uh, it's it's great. But if I have to pick up another book that just basically copies and pastes the Dungeons and Dragons world system, I'm going to puke. So <laughs> I'm just so tired of it. Probably almost every fantasy book that comes out is just another copy and paste of Dungeons and Dragons magic system and class system and race system mm-hmm. over and over and over. And of course that's, we can blame Tolkien for that, but, but I guess when yeah. you have a, you have a person who's a genius uh, and they, uh, they do something amazing and groundbreaking. Of course you can't be blame everybody else for trying to copy it. You know? I know, but I would like, I would like there to be more ground broken, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. There is an interesting new flourishing just that, that reminded me of overseeing indigenous created content more so. Like there, there's um, Coyote and Crow, which is an, an RPG tabletop story world that was created by an entire team of indigenous Americans. And it's it's interesting because it's a basically, you know, post-apocalyptic but non-colonial narrative. And the entire premise of the game is is based around your skill trees are around healing and communication. And that's super interesting because it's like when we finally see pieces like this, it, it does feel so refreshing. And so, yeah, so I, I, I'm with you both that I'm, I'm hopeful for the future of storytelling. Astrid, what are you, what are you hopeful for in, in the, the future of anthro storytelling? I feel like so much of what we've talked about today, like we, we were talking in the beginning about how we came to anthropology. And I know for me, it was through epics, actually, because I was little. I used to read like Greek and Roman mythology then I went to college and I learned that those were not the only stories. And when you read like the Ramayana or I read the Epic of Gilgamesh, it was so cool to see stories that I recognized, but were not told the same way. And I think that's what I wish we had more of is like, and not just have more and different stories, but also remember the stories that already exist and tell them because there's so many cool ones and it's really hard to find them, especially like we were talking earlier in the United States where we produce so much content. I mean, the continent of Asia has so many stories. Hmm. There's like 800 different types of cultures just in Africa. I mean, there's so much to tell that already exists. I wish we could retell them because I also notice that when we retell stories, they're always the same stories. And mm. sometimes there's even familiar stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, but it's told differently. And that's also really illuminating to help us see another person's perspective, which I feel like is really missing right now. Well, that's yeah, even, absolutely. Yeah. That's even the Bible. I mean, the Epic of Gilgamesh, yeah. you know, you have the flood narrative with Utnupishtim and then you get Noah with the, the Ark and it's the same exact story, right? I mean, so yeah. we've been recycling old stories forever. <laughs> yeah. But with every, like when you retell them, if you retell them in a fresh way, it becomes almost a different story. Like yeah. the, the same yeah. part, but a, a very different approach. And I love that. Yeah, because th- we are we are at some point running up against the fact that we're humans, 
that we can mm-hmm. only have certain kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. So mm. what's important is getting fresh eyes on those experiences, I think. And that's that's one of the things we really wanted to do with this book too. Yeah. Is give people the space to build a cultural system. Uh, and here's a series of tools that you can use to build a unique cultural system and get a fresh perspective and fresh eyes. Well, then folks, this is your mandate. You got to get out there. You got to check out these books. You can get either one. You can get the the learning academic version. You can get the commercial <laughs> version and dive in either way, depending how, how deep you want to go. And so um, we're super excited to, to share these books with the good world and help you get the word out about them. And so Michael and Kira, a huge thank you for talking with us today. This has been super fun. We should definitely do a sequel and, and continue on. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Adam. It's great talking to you and Astrid. Thanks again to Kira and Michael for joining us on the podcast today. You can check out their book, Build Better Worlds, an introduction to anthropology for game designers, fiction writers, and filmmakers at your local bookstore or online today. And of course, we'll have the link in the show notes. Now, as we wrap up, don't think I forgot about what I said up top. I am curious to hear about your favorite stories and what you love about them. You know, what does your favorite story do for you and why? Does it help ground you, help you escape? You know, why do the characters resonate with you? Let's be in conversation. As always, feel free to drop me a line on this Anthrolife website or join a thread on our community on social media. We'll have some posts running on Twitter and Facebook. So thanks again for tuning in and helping anthropology be a part of building better worlds. I'm Adam Gamwell for this Anthrolife and we'll catch you soon. Ciao.